Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We are ending this series. I'm just going to tell you, this morning will be a little bit of story time with Pastor Gabe, okay? That's what this morning will be because I want to wrap up the life of this incredible man, this incredible, amazing story of his life and his journey and how he impacted the the kingdom of Israel, but ultimately how he impacted the world through the kingdom of God. And so we're talking about the life, of course, of Elijah the prophet. Now, where we left off before we paused for legacy, we left off in the series with a very freshly encouraged Elijah. He was a freshly encouraged Elijah. What I mean by that is throughout his obedience to God and the hardships and the things that he had to face, he saw some high mountain moments where God moved, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment here briefly, but he also saw some very low lows. He had some very hard things in life that he had to face, and he found himself discouraged. And on Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, God met him, and God encouraged his heart. And not only did God encourage his heart, God gave him the plan for the future, and God gave him direction for what he wanted him to do next. How many of you are grateful that in our lowest moments, God will come to us? He doesn't dis us or discredit us in our, our discouragement, but he encourages us to keep going. How many of y'all are grateful for that? That's what he did for Elijah. And as he gave him this plan, Elijah obeyed. And let me give you backstory for those of you who have not, maybe not been with us. And I want to encourage you, if you've, if you've missed messages in this series or you've want, you want to just catch up or hear them again, you can go to our, our QR code that we're going to put up here on the screen. You just pull out your camera on your phone and the camera will take you automatically, hit the button, it'll take you automatically to all of our messages that we preached at this campus and including the life of Elijah, the whole series. So you can always go back and study it, listen to it. It or catch up to where we are today. But to give you a little bit of backstory, Elijah came from nowhere, showed up out of nowhere to call a nation to repentance. He came to call God's people, the children of God, Israel, God's chosen people, to repentance because of their sin of idolatry. They were worshiping false gods, the gods of Baal and Asherah, and they had turned away from God to serve these wicked idols. And Elijah shows up and basically says there will be no rain for th- or dew on the ground for three and a half years. And I'm gonna dry that up and until you repent or until I give the word, there won't be any rain in the land. And for three and a half years, there weren't. Another, this whole moment culminated with Elijah on Mount Carmel facing 800 prophets and defeating them by calling down fire from heaven. And when he called down this fire from heaven, it proved, it showed that the Lord is God and the false idols the people were serving are not. And after all of the amazing things that the nation saw, in that moment, there was a brief moment of repentance in everyone except the leaders of the nation. 
After all of that, after seeing fire come down from heaven, after seeing a drought in the land for three and a half years, after all of these things, at the words of this prophet, still Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked leaders of Israel, would not turn and would not repent. After all of that. And that's what led to Elijah's discouragement. But that's where God came and met him. And I'm going to tell you the main point of my message before I even begin. Is that okay with y'all? Can I just give you the point that I want to make? The Lord is the final judge. And one day we will all receive our reward. That's the whole point. He is a righteous judge and he is the final judge. And one day we will all receive our reward for our actions. And when I say reward, some are good, some are not. But that is the point of my message this morning. So I want to break it down into three parts, if you will. Let's dive into part one. After Elisha started following Elijah, things seemed to go back to normal for King Ahab until a neighboring king, a neighboring nation called Aram, the king named King Ben-Hadad decided, I'm going to attack Israel, and I'm going to gather 32 other kings, and we're going to bully Israel around. And he goes to pick a fight with Israel, and very surprisingly, God sends another prophet, not Elijah or Elisha, God sends another prophet to tell Ahab exactly what to do in order to win the battle. And Ahab does it, not only once, but twice he defeats this wicked king, named Ben-Hadad and all 32 other of the kings that were with him. And you would think this would be a turning point in Ahab's life, but it wasn't. Because after he defeated that, those wicked nations twice, God had given him specific instruction through this young prophet who we don't know his name, but he gave him specific advice or wisdom on what to do, direction, God wanted him to kill the king of Aram. But instead of killing the king of Aram, Ahab decided, sure, he's my brother. Come get in a chariot with me. And completely disobeyed God. And this is what the prophet says to him. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 42. The prophet said to him, this is what the Lord says, because you have spared the man I said must be destroyed, now you must die in his place and your people will die instead of his people. So the king of Israel went home to Samaria angry and sullen. So what just happened here? First of all, why would God even rescue Ahab? He hadn't repented. He was still doing dumb stuff. How many of you are grateful to God that he will help us even when we're being dumb? God helped him and he still continued to disobey God. My question reading this was why would God help him to begin with? I'll tell you why. Because God had already spoken to Elijah who was going to bring the judgment to Ahab and to Israel and it was not King Ben-Hadad. God had already spoken who was going to bring this judgment about, which just goes to show you, it is not your, it's not your boss who determines your future. 
It's not your employees. It's not the people who talk bad about you. It's not your vendors. It's not your clients. It's not the government. The Lord is the righteous judge, and he has the final say. God already knew who was going to bring about this judgment to Israel. And this is what he told. I'm going to read this passage to you a couple times, but this is what he told Elijah when Elijah was discouraged. This was the instruction that he gave him. First Kings chapter 19, verse 15 says this. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Haziel, king over Aram. Benadad was the king of Aram, but God said, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. So that was part one. Just building the case for how we're going to close this out. Part two is this, the breaking point. Here's the the straw that broke the camel's back. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, Since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down from my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. He threw a hissy fit, basically. And there's two things that I want you to see in this, this, the portion of this story. I love Naboth because Naboth was faced with a decision to make. Am I going to obey the king who is asking me for this land and he's in charge and he's the ruler and he's making the laws? Or am I going to obey God's law? Because God's law had already told us, and I'm not going to go there, but you can go there if you want to. Numbers chapter 36, verses 7 through 9. God's law had already told the children of Israel as they were receiving the land that they were in, that if your tribe was given land, that land is to stay in that tribe. You cannot sell that land to other tribal members, to other tribes, excuse me. It has to stay within your tribe because the land is ultimately the Lord's. It's not even really yours. And Naboth knew that, and he was faced with the decision, do I obey man or do I obey God? And he chose to obey God. Hear me, I believe that as as Christians, as followers of Christ, we should obey the laws of the land. I believe that. I believe we should honor those in authority who don't deserve our honor, not because they are honorable, because we are. I believe that. But let me be very clear, when the laws of man contradict the laws of God, we stand on the laws of God. That is the truth. And that is where we should find ourselves, if ever faced with that. Naboth made the right decision. And he stood against the king. That's the first thing that I want you to see. 
The second thing I want you to see is just how weak King Ahab was. Just how weak of a man he was. I've said this in the series before, and just if you haven't heard it, hear it again. Let it sink deep. You cannot have a Jezebel without an Ahab. You cannot have a woman who operates like Jezebel without having a weak man like Ahab that allows it. That's my point. Pastor, are you against strong women? Not at all. Obviously, you've never met my mom, my wife, or my three daughters. I am very much for strong women. I was raised by a strong woman. I married to a strong woman. And by the grace of God, I will raise three strong women. So I want you to hear that. I am very much for strong women, but I am for stronger men. I am for stronger men. Men who know how to lead. Men who take on the responsibility and the mantle of what it means to be a man. I want to encourage you with this. Parents, dads, moms, hear me. Don't raise your sons to be little boys. Raise them to be men. Raise them to be men. Listen, enjoy the stages of them being little boys. Enjoy those moments, but don't keep them there. Don't, the goal is not that they stay my little boy. No, the goal is that they learn how to be men who take responsibility, who know how to lead a family, who know how to keep a job. Teach them how to hear, please hear me. Teach them how to hear the word no. Teach them how to learn the words, not yet. That is how you raise men. And I've said this many times before, and the men who've been in my Bible study are sick of me saying it, but the definition, the truest definition of masculinity is the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. Men take sacrificial responsibility. We accept responsibility. Teach your sons this, because this is what our culture has produced. Our culture has produced a bunch of little boys masking around, or masking, raiding around as men, who've never learned these things. Raise men, because when you don't, it hurts their future families. It hurts their culture and their society. Raise men. Let's keep going. I want you to hear the, the interaction exchange between Jezebel and Ahab. First Kings chapter 21, verse five. Listen to, listen to what she says about him. What's the matter, his wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? In other words, why are you boudin? <laughs> Wives, don't look at your husbands right now. This is not the time for you to do that. If you're not Cajun, boudang means crying and throwing a fit. Okay, just... Verse six, I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard and trade it. And he just, I can just hear him. I asked him to trade it and he wouldn't do it. But he refused, Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not, Jezebel demanded. In other words, man up. Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So Jezebel devises this plan, and her plan works. 
Her plan is to set up Naboth around the other leaders of Israel and have them accuse him of blaspheming God and blaspheming, or excuse me, fighting against, going against the king. And her plan works, and the leaders of Israel stone Naboth, an innocent man, to death for nothing. So that now Ahab can simply seize his property. And just as Ahab shows up to play with his new toy that his mom got him, (laughs) guess who shows up on the scene once again? Elijah, the man of God. This is what it says in verse 17 of chapter 21. But the Lord said to Elijah, go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. We see here God's judgment yet again on Ahab. But this time, there's nothing left up to ambiguity. It is very detailed, it is very precise, and it's not coming from some junior prophet, it's coming from the man of God himself. And not only does God speak a judgment over Ahab, but he speaks a judgment over Jezebel as well. Verse 20, this is what he says. So, my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered. I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. Think about that. You have sold yourself to what is evil. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male servants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel, I am going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Bashar, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry, and I have have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of the land of Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures." No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. Nothing ambiguous, nothing left to interpretation, just direct truth and direct judgment. This wicked family had seemingly gotten away with so many things. God had given them chance after chance after chance to repent, and they would not. Until finally the word of the Lord came, and the righteous judge made a righteous judgment. And I know some of you may say, Pastor, that seems kind of harsh. Hear me, God is not a judge, he is the judge. He is the judge who sees every bit of your circumstance and every ounce of your motive and your intentions. God knows the good things we do for good reasons and God knows the good things we do for bad reasons. He is a righteous judge and he sees the intentions of our heart. Here's something I think you can relate to because I've seen it in my own life. 
God is way more merciful than I am. Way more merciful than I am. And there's times when God extends mercy to people that I would rather him not. But equally, when God steps in to bring judgment or righteous judgment, it often makes us uncomfortable. We find ourselves going, God, that's a bit much, don't you think? Do you want to know why that is? Because we were created in his image. He was not created in ours. In other words, who we are and our sense of morality is simply a reflection of him. We were created in the imago Dei, the image of God, right? We're a reflection of him. He is not doing what we think is right. We do what he thinks is right. Are y'all with me? God alone is the righteous judge. And it's often the case with those who make wicked decisions. They make those choices and because there's not an immediate consequence, they believe they've gotten away with it and it gives them no reason to change or repent. They just keep compiling sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And that's exactly what Ahab and Jezebel did. They just kept compounding their sin until the day of the Lord came. Pastor, what's the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is when the Lord steps in to bring about judgment. And that's what he did in the life of Ahab. That's what he did in the life of Jezebel. He brought about a righteous judgment. Why? Because he is the righteous judge. Verse 27. But when Ahab heard this, he tore his clothes, dressed in burlap and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Finally, Ahab humbles himself. After three and a half years of watching his people suffer, after watching fire come down from heaven, after God giving him wisdom to defeat battles and win battles he should not have won, he finally humbled himself before God. Men especially, we have a difficult time with this, humbling ourselves. But I'm reminded of the words of Jesus Fall on the rock and be broken or have the rock fall on you and be crushed. God wants us to humble ourselves. That seems like a lot, Pastor Gabe. That is God's mercy and God's grace. Because in his word, he tells us, I give grace to the humble, but I resist the proud. I would rather God humble me than me walk around thinking I'm the man and boasting and acting like I don't need him when one day I will stand before him and see how much I needed him. Are y'all with me? Now let's get to part three, the final part. Because I want you to see how, as we close out this story, I want you to see how God ties a bow on all of the things that he said. Let's talk about the life of Ahab and how it ended. First Kings chapter 22, there was a battle, another battle, 
where this time Ahab, king of Israel, joined forces with the king of Judah, and they went into this battle together against, surprise, surprise, the king of Aram, the same man who he called his brother and did not kill when God said to kill him. And he goes into this battle, and he didn't wear his royal robes because the king of Aram said, I want my men focused on killing Ahab. If you see Ahab, kill him. Somehow, I think Ahab knew that. So he came dressed in normal clothes. And as the battle's going on, a lone soldier throws randomly a spear that just so happens to hit Ahab in between his armor, perfectly placed. And throughout that day and that evening, as the battle continued, Ahab bled out and ultimately bled to death. And this is what the Bible says. Chapter 22, verse 37. So the king died and his body was taken to Samaria and buried there. Then his chariot was washed beside the pool of Samaria and dogs came and licked his blood at the place where the prostitutes bathed, just as the Lord had promised. He died in the same field that he killed Naboth. And his blood was licked away just like Naboth's was. He died, like Elijah said, and in the manner that Elijah said he would die. Now, remember what God said to Elijah. Okay, remember when Elijah's discouraged and God speaks to him and he gives him the plan and he tells him how he's going to bring about just justice and judgment to Israel. He says this again, I wanna read it to you again. 1 Kings 19, verse 15. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king over Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape from Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Who's this Hazael guy? Let me tell you his story. Again, the king of Aram was this wicked king, Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad found himself sick. And one day he'd heard the man of God, not Elijah, Elisha, the protege of Elijah, was in town. And because the man of God was in town, uh, Ben-Hadad sent his servant, a guy by the name of Hazael, to go bring 40 camels weighed down with products and the best products from all of Aram to basically, in a sense, bribe Elisha. I'm gonna send you with all of this stuff so that maybe you'll give me a word from God. So he sends Hazael, and then one of the most awkward moments in all of the Old Testament happens. And I want you to see it. Hazael's face-to-face with Elisha to find out what his master will be the outcome of his master, Ben-Hadad. This is what the Bible says, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And Elisha replied, go and tell him, you will surely recover, speaking of King Ben-Hadad. But actually, the Lord has shown me that he will surely die. Elisha stared at Hazael with a fixed gaze until Hazael became uneasy. Let me pause there for a moment. Imagine you're sitting with a prophet who can look into your soul, hears from God what God is saying about you. How many of you would be fairly uncomfortable if he was sitting there staring at you like this? I don't know about you, in my mind I'd be like, well, 
okay, I got in an argument with Lauren two weeks ago. I mean, I spanked my kids. I'm supposed to. It's biblical. I'm supposed to spank them, but I was a little angry, so maybe I did it a little too much. Okay, right? And so he's sitting there, and the prophet's just staring at him, and he gets uncomfortable, and then this happens. Then the man of God started weeping. What's the matter, my Lord? Hazael asked him. Elijah replied, I know the terrible things you will do to the people of Israel. You will burn their fortified cities, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Hezekiah responded, responded, how could a nobody like me ever accomplish such great things? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are going to be the king of Aram. Now pause for a moment. This is a servant to the king. And also, these are terrible things that are going to happen. Why would these terrible things happen to God's people? Because God's people were under God's judgment because they would not repent. They would not turn. They would not humble themselves. They followed their wicked leadership and allowed that culture to become their culture and they worshiped false gods and this was another part of God's righteous judgment. This is what happens. Hazael turns and he goes back to his master, Benadad. But the next day, Hazael took a blanket, soaked it in water and held it over the king's face until he died. Then Hazael became the next king of Aram. Hezekiah, the Bible continues to tell us in 2 Kings that he tormented Israel. He would bully Israel. He would fight against them in wars because the people of Israel would not repent and would not turn to God. He fulfills this prophecy spoken of him. But the prophecy also spoke of a man named Jehu. Jehu was a soldier, he was a commander, he was no king until the word of the Lord came to him. Second Kings chapter nine, verse one says this. Meanwhile, Elisha, the prophet, had summoned a member of the group of prophets. Get ready to travel, he told them, and take this flask of olive oil with you. Go to Ramoth Gilead and find Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Call him in a private room away from his friends and pour the oil on his head. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. I anoint you to be the king over Israel. Then open the door and run for your life. (laughs) It's one of those uncomfortable words you have to give to people. So he goes and he does this. And he calls Jehu into a separate room. And the young prophet does exactly what Elisha, the prophet, said. He gives him this prophecy and he tells him, you are going to kill the family of Ahab and you are going to be the king of Israel. And then he takes off running. And then Jehu walks out to all of his friends, mind you, dripping in oil. And they ask him, what did that crazy man want? And Jehu says, he tries to brush it off and not tell them. He says, you know those, cra- he's probably from Koto. Like, he, just, <laughs> he was just crazy. Until they pressed because they realized something was going on. Verse 12, you're hiding something, they said. Tell us, 
So Jehu told them, he said to me, this is what the Lord says, I have anointed you to be king over Israel. Then they quickly spread out their cloaks on the bare steps and blew the ram's horn shouting, Jehu is king. Just that quick as the word of the Lord came, it changed everything. Ahab's family had been on the throne. Ahab at this point had died in that battle I just told you about. Another one of his sons had taken the throne, but then he died at the judgment of Elijah. Really cool story. Go back and read it. Elijah calling out fire on 100 people, but just go back and read it. But then he dies, and Joram, another one of Ahab's sons, takes the throne, and he is now the king. And he hears that there's a commotion going on because he sent messengers out. And little does he know, Jehu is now on his way to meet him to begin fulfilling this prophecy and to begin fulfilling this word. Jehu, excuse me, Joram rides out to meet him. Guess where? In the field of Naboth, where the judgment was declared. Verse 22, King Joram demanded, do you come in peace, Jehu? Jehu replied, how can there be peace as long as the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel are all around us? Then the King Joram turned to the horses around and fled, shouting to King Haziel, king of Judah, treason, Haziel, or Aziel. But Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he sank dead in his chariot. So this is now two of Ahab's sons who are dead. But the Bible tells us that Ahab had 70 sons. 70. This is after the two that died. He had 70 sons. So Jehu wrote letters to the elders, the leaders of the communities and the leaders of Israel. And he basically told them, if you're with me, kill them. And that's exactly what they did. And if you've ever read the Bible and thought, man, this is boring, you are not reading it right. (laughs) Because they, not only did they kill the 70 sons, but they stacked their heads together, their skulls together. Verse 11, chapter 10, verse 11. And then Jehu killed all who were left of Ahab's relatives living in Jezreel and all his important officials, his personal friends and his priests. So Ahab was left without a single survivor, just as the word of the Lord said. Which begs the question, what happened then to Jezebel, the wicked queen who really caused all of this? I'm so glad you asked. Because in the chapter right before this, 2 Kings chapter 9, this is what happens. Jehu is going to pay a visit to Jezebel. Verse 30. When Jezebel, the queen mother, heard that Jehu had come to Jezreel, she painted her eyelids and fixed her hair, which is hilarious, and I'll tell you why in a minute, and sat at a window. When Jehu entered the gate of the palace, she shouted at him, have you come in peace, you murderer? What kind of question is that? Have you come in peace, you murderer? You're just like Zimri who murdered his master. So Jezebel enacts what the spirit of Jezebel does. It does two, two different things. Number one, she tries to use her feminine charm and her beauty to manipulate and to control. Here's the problem. She was old. 
she's sitting there putting her makeup on and she's still old. How many of you ever met people who are like, I still got it, and you're like, you ain't got it no more. So that didn't work. And she does the second thing that the spirit of Jezebel does. Control through manipulation and accusation. This is what she said. She said, have you come in peace, you murderer, just like Zimri, or Zimri. Let me tell you who Zimri was, briefly. Zimri was a man who did the same type of thing that Jehu did came and killed a wicked king and became the king. But the problem is, is that the Zimri, he, his kingdom lasted for seven days because after seven days, someone else named Amari came and killed him and took over the kingdom. So the, the very thing that she's saying is, you're gonna take over, but it won't last. What you're doing is worthless and you're gonna die for what you're doing. She's accusing and trying to scare and manipulate him. As a matter of fact, the person, Omari, who killed Zimri was Ahab's father. So she knew this story very well, and she knew what she was saying, and she was trying to manipulate and control Jehu, as often the spirit of Jezebel does. But Jehu was having none of it. He was not enticed, and he would not be controlled. Verse 32, this is what happens. Jehu looked up and saw her at the window and shouted, who is on my side? And two or three eunuchs looked out at her, at him, excuse me, threw her down, Jehu, threw her down, Jehu yelled. So they threw her out the window and her blood splattered against the wall and on the horses. And Jehu trampled her body under his horse's hooves. Then Jehu went into the palace and ate and drank. He sat down and went and had a meal. Afterwards, he said, someone go and bury this cursed woman, for she is the daughter of a king. But when they went out to bury her, they found only her skull, her feet, and her hands. When they returned and told Jehu, he stated, this fulfills the message from the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Elijah from Tishbe. At the plot of land in Jezreel, dogs will eat Jezebel's body. Her remains will be scattered like dung on the plot of the land in Jezreel so that no one will be able to recognize her. The day of the Lord eventually came. The judgments that God spoke eventually came. This is what we call the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord when God steps in and brings his judgment. I've heard, people, I've heard uh, people say this about God. God is never early, but he's almost late a whole bunch. And just because God does not enact judgment at the time that you think he should does not mean that he will not do it and will not do it in the perfect time. And that's exactly what he does. And if you're going, man, pastor, this is so harsh. Remember, God had given them chance after chance after chance to repent, to turn, to stop leading his people astray. And when they would not, the day of the Lord came and they had to face the judgment for their sins. I was walking my dog the other day, which at times feels like a judgment from God. But 
was walking my dog and I had this picture in my mind, this image in my mind. And I was tiny. And I was standing in this room and I was standing before a giant throne. And as you can imagine, who was on that throne but God. And it was, I knew exactly what the moment was. It was the moment of judgment. It was the moment that, hear me, look up here. Every single one of us will stand before his righteous judgment, his righteous throne one day. And it does not matter how much money you have. It does not matter how much influence you have. It does not matter all of those things that we put our trust in will mean absolutely nothing as we stand before the righteous judge of the universe. And if that scares you, it should. It should. And all I can say is thank God for the shed blood of Jesus that covers my sin. That's why we need him. That's why we need him because we will be judged for even the idle words that have come out of our mouth as we stand before a holy, just God. The day of the Lord will come as it did for Ahab, for Jezebel, and for their lineage. But there's two more people before I close that I want you to hear the endings of their story. One was Elisha, who God had told Elijah to go and make him your protege. Go and and mentor him. He will anoint him to be the next prophet. This is what the Bible says, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went down to Bethel together. Let me tell you what's happening. God has spoke to Elijah and he is getting ready to go up to heaven. God is getting ready to take him. And he's going to these places and he's telling Elisha, you stay here while I go here. And Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, grabs the hole and says, wherever you go, I'm going. I refuse to leave you. I made my decision when I killed my oxen and you put your cloak on me. I decided in that moment that I'm following you. And that for us is a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because there are moments where that decision you made to follow him will be tested. And you will have the opportunity to walk away from following him the way that you made that decision. I'm following him. It will happen. It happened in Jesus' time. When Jesus was speaking to a crowd of people. And he told them some very hard things. This is what he said. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they went, I'm out. Imagine if I got up on Sunday and said the same thing. If you, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have, you have no part with me. You'd be like, going to Lafayette campus. That's what Jesus did. And in the people's mind, they didn't understand. They're thinking cannibalism and all of it. And so they're leaving. And Jesus turns to his disciples, his closest followers, and he says to them, are you going to leave too? 
And I love Peter's response. Peter said, Lord, where are we gonna go? You hold the words of eternal life. In other words, Lord, you can say whatever you want. I'm following you. You will be faced with many opportunities to say, Lord, I'm not following. Lord, that's too hard. God, I don't know about that. But it's in those moments you remember the declaration you made. You are my Lord. And I will follow you. That's what Elisha was doing to Elijah in these moments. And Elijah not only went to Bethel, but he did the exact same thing and they had the exact same conversation going to Jericho. And when he went to Jericho, Elijah said, you can say, Elijah said, I'm not going anywhere, I'm following you. And then they go to the Jordan River. And Elijah says, I'm going to the Jordan River. Excuse me, and Elijah says, well, I'm not, I'm following you, I'm going there. And whenever you see the Jordan River in the Bible, oftentimes I should say, not every time, it symbolizes transition. When you get to the Jordan River and you see that in the Bible, it's a transition. It's when Joshua brought the people into the land that they were going to take over. Here we see Elijah and Elisha going across the Jordan. We see David in the Bible going across the Jordan. Those were all moments of transition in their lives. So clearly a transition is happening and Elisha knows it. Verse seven, 50 men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. Then Elijah Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The water, excuse me, the river divided and the two of them went across on dry ground. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. And Elisha replied, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I am taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. And some may say this was a selfish ask of Elisha, but I don't believe so. I believe it was the exact opposite of pride. I believe it was humility. I think he was saying, If I'm going to be this man that you've told me for years, six years now that I'm going to be, I need what's on you to be on me or I can't accomplish it. I can't do this without God's anointing on my life. And I've heard people teach on the double portion and the double portion. And you must say, Pastor Gay, pray for me so I can receive a double portion. And in your mind, that means I want what what you have, but I'm going to do double that. That's not what that even means. Because in in Bible times, in biblical times, you would give an inheritance to your kids and you would give them a share of what you had. And to the oldest child, the person who was going to become the leader of the family, they would give them what everybody else received, but double it. And that was called the double portion. And it signified that you are now the leader and you have the most, you're leading this. And Elisha was saying, give me the double portion of your spirit so that I can accomplish what you've done. And truthfully, he ended up being able to do the ministry double the amount of time of Elijah and did the same miracles and greater. Which is indicative, and I'm gonna get to this in a moment, of when Jesus told his disciples, greater things than these will you do. That's the double portion. 
This is what happened, verse 11, and I'm closing. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared. Drawn by horses of fire, it drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress, and Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak which had fallen when he was taken up. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River. He struck the water with Elisha's Elijah's cloak and cried, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Then the river divided and Elisha went across. He received the double portion and he carried on the ministry that God had given to Elijah. And he became the lead prophet, just as was prophesied. Just like the great prophet was gone, and it was time for the new generation to take up the mantle, so it is with us as believers and Christians. Our call is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples constantly passing on the gospel and the truth to the next generation. And it's easy to look back and look at the future and criticize this generation and go, they're just so lazy and they're so immoral. Can I remind you, older people, that you grew up in the 70s? Remember Woodstock? Remember free love? As a matter of fact, a lot of what we see in our culture comes from those days. Doors that were open, and if God can do what he did in your life, he can do the same in this generation. He can. So it's imperative, it's important, it's paramount that you pass on to the next generation what God has invested into you, to your kids, Teach them the values of the Bible. Teach them the gospel. Teach them who God is. To the young men and women in our church, teach them. To newer believers, teach them. Pass on what has been given to you and passed on to you. Because if you will notice the story of Haziel and the story of Jehu, who anointed them? It wasn't Elijah. It was Elisha. It was the next generation who got to fulfill the promises of God. It was the next generation who took on the mantle and furthered what God wanted to do in Israel. That's the importance of thinking with a legacy mindset, having that type of mentality, thinking kingdom thoughts. And lastly, Elijah, the man who we've built this whole series around, For Elijah, now it was all worth it. All of the hardship, all of the accusations, all of the Mount Carmel moments, all of the being fed by the ravine, by by ravens and being away from what you knew as normal, all of the, the hurt, all of the confusion, all of the God, where are you? It was all worth it when he stood before God and heard, well done. Church, can I tell you, one day for you it will all be worth it.
all of the pain, all of the accusations, all of the being misunderstood, all of the times your kids said to you, how come I can't do what everybody else, all my friends are doing, all of the, your family going, you're going to what church? All of the, aren't you taking this Jesus thing a little too seriously? All of the culture accusing you of things that could be nothing further from the truth will all be worth it when we stand before him and receive our just reward from our just God and he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. It will all be worth it. It was for Elijah. And as I close, I close with this. Elijah was a picture of Jesus. And I hope you see that. All of his story, yes, it was, we were talking about him, but he was a type and a shadow of the Messiah to come, the King to come, who would rescue God's people. He went to the Gentiles, Elijah went to the Gentiles, so did Jesus. Jesus called the nations to repentance. The same thing Elijah did. And when Elijah ascended to heaven in chariots of fire and Elisha watched him ascend was nothing more than a picture of what would one day happen when Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven and his disciples watched him be ascend, ascend to heaven. And in this time, instead of a cloak coming down, Jesus sent down the Holy Spirit in fire to empower his church, to anoint his church, to accomplish the work that God has called you and I to do. So stand, church, for, for righteousness. Stand for what's right. Don't capitulate. Don't bow to the culture just because the culture says this is right and you have to do this or else do not yield. Do not bow. Do not let a political party, any of them, tell you what your morality should be. Look to the source of morality. Look to the God who gives, who's the righteous judge and who tells us what is right and what is wrong. Don't look to science for your morality. Look to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as I close, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Close your eyes. I want to pray for you this morning. Father, thank you for the life of this incredible man that we got to read and study and dive into. But Lord, I pray that the same way that the mantle was passed from Elijah to Elisha, you've sent your spirit to fill us and to empower us to do the work of the ministry. Jesus, you told your disciples, greater works than these will you do. And we believe you for that. Let us be the light and the salt. It's not by irony, Lord, that the Bible says that you are the light of the world. And you simultaneously tell us, the church, that you are the light of the world. Help us to wear that mantle and take on that responsibility and to represent you well. If you're here this morning with every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to do the same thing that Elisha did with Elijah, to follow him. 
because that is the call that Jesus is making to every one of you in this building. Come, follow me. And all you have to do is respond to that. And the Bible calls it being born again. And we like to say it this way at our church. We call it the ABCs, as simple as ABC. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner. That you don't try to hide it. You don't sugarcoat it. You don't say I've made mistakes. You admit there's sin that separates me from a holy, righteous God. B, you believe. Believe what? That God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. That he paid the price for everything you've ever done wrong so that you could stand before God pure and spotless and see you confess. Confess that he is now Lord and that you are going to answer that call and do it his way and follow him. So with no one looking around on the count of three, if you say, Pastor, that's me, I want to respond to this call. And I don't want to respond just by raising my hand or just by saying some words, but I want to respond by giving my commitment and my heart to Jesus and following him. And if that is you, I want to lead you in a prayer in the conversation that you have with him to begin being his follower. So with no one looking around on the count of three, I just want you to lift up your hand if that's you. One, two, three, if that's you, lift it up. You say, that's me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. I see your hand back there. Praise God. Anyone else? Thank you, sir. I see your hand. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. See your hand back there. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Praise God. Thank you, sir. I see your hand back there. Praise God. Thank you, ma'am. You can put them down. If you say, Pastor, I didn't raise my hand. My heart was my heart's beating out of my chest, and I want to respond. I was just scared. I was just nervous. I want to include me in that prayer. I want to pray for you one more opportunity. If that's you, lift up your hand now. If you say, I didn't raise it the first time, but that's me. Thank you. Young lady, I see your hand. Thank you. You can put him down, church. Let's pray this prayer out loud with all of our new brothers and sisters. It's our prayer of surrender. Nothing magical about the words, but it's the grace of God that's going to save you in your surrendered heart. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin, repenting of my sin. I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you're my father. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate with every single person that prayed that prayer. Praise God.